We are Hope Church Guildford. This is a recent recording from our Sunday morning gathering. We hope you can join us at the Royal Grammar School on Guildford High Street, Sundays at 10am. Enjoy the message. Right, should we give a welcome to Rohana? She brings support to us. Uh, good morning, Hope Church. Oh, you can hear me, that's good. Um, good morning, Hope Church. Isn't it so good to be here, inside, in the warm, away from the rain? Um, for those who don't know me, I'm Rahana. I've been part of Hope Church for about two and a bit years now, um, and I also help to lead the Students in Twenties ministry here uh, at the church. Um, let me just pray for us, and then I'll get started. Father, I just thank you so much for your word and for your kindness to each and every one of us here. And I just pray that, um, yeah, as we open up your word this morning, that you would just be here, that your spirit would speak through me, and that um, we'd all just have open ears and hearts to hear you. Amen. Amen. So I wanted to start today by asking you a question. Um, It's not one you have to answer out loud, but something just to think about in your mind. Um, So I want to know, who is somebody that you would drop everything for? Who can you think of that is the kind of person that when they enter a room, their presence is so tangibly felt that you can't help but react? Uh, Maybe you can think of a specific person in your life, or maybe it's just someone you've seen on the TV that has a certain sight type of gravitas, or maybe it's just a list of traits that you can think of that this person would need to have. Last week, Chris centred his talk around the question of who is Jesus. It was a question that the disciples had, it's a question that we have today, and it's a question that's at the heart of Mark's account of Jesus' life. Over these past few months, as we've gone through Mark's gospel, we've seen snapshot after snapshot of Jesus' ministry, uh, zooming through miracles almost like a greatest hits collection. And what we've seen in all of these stories are people reacting to Jesus. We saw that at the start of Mark's account, the disciples dropping everything to follow Jesus straight away, which is why I asked you that question. Um, We've also seen the Pharisees, the religious leaders, as early as chapter 3, start coming up with ideas of how to kill Jesus. We've seen demons call him the son of the most high God. We have seen crowds amazed at his authority. Um, But what is clear through all of these varying reactions is that Jesus as a person provokes a response. And today's passage is no different. We again see a variety of reactions to Jesus. If you wanted a title for today's sermon, it would be this, Faith, Fear, and False Familiarity. As we unpack this bit of scripture, these are the different responses we'll see to Jesus. We'll meet a religious leader, a social outcast, and some family friends. Take a moment to think of these people who play that role in your own life. How do they react to Jesus? Today's passage is actually more like two, and if we had the time, I'm sure we'd have a complete separate sermon for both of them. Um, But I don't want us to think of each section as separate things, even though I will be reading them separately. Um, I want us to think of it as a meal. The first story that we're going to see in Mark 5 is a sandwich. And then as we move into Mark 6, that's kind of our side salad, as it were. Um, We're eating both parts of the meal together, but we'll gain slightly different things from them. 
Uh, so with that analogy now out there, let's crack on with our sandwich. So this is Mark 5, verses 21 to 43. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered round him when he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders, named Jairus, came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed round him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned round in the, in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion, with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put all of them out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went in to where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Right, so, oh, yes, I'm sorry, I forgot to say if people need a Bible or a scripture journal, um, there are some and I should have said that before we read the passage, but it's still good to have a Bible open. So if you want one, put your hands up and John and Dee will run around to you. Is that wrong? No, we're good. Um, cool, right. So very quickly, I hope you can see why I referred to this section um, as a sandwich rather than a more interesting or appealing lunch option. Uh, Mark has literally structured this section using a sandwich technique, putting a story of one healing that of the bleeding woman, right in the middle in the story of another healing, that of Jairus's daughter. Uh, this is something that Mark does a few times throughout his account, but this is the first time we've seen it. Well, I'm pretty sure this is the first time we've seen it. Uh, if you want to be fancy, the technical term is intercalating, um, but when I was taught about it, it was literally taught to me as a Markan sandwich. So, um, we don't always stop to talk about like the literary form or structure of biblical passages, but I think in this case it's important because it's done with purpose to teach us something about each story. 
The outer story of Jairus adds weight to the inner story of this unnamed woman, but the inner story of this woman also bleeds out into the outer one, no pun intended. Um, it's a common literary technique. It's still used today. Uh, I was trying to think of some examples from books that some of us may have read to kind of help people understand it. Um, so for anyone who's read the Harry Potter novels, if you've read the final Harry Potter, The Deathly Hallows, um, there's a section in that where they tell this story of the three brothers. And in the film version, there's like an animation of it. Um, but it's kind of there, not just as like a nice little interlude, but it kind of informs us of the context of Harry's kind of quest in the real world. Um, in terms of more classic literature, it's also seen in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, for anyone who's read that, uh, which at one point is literally a story within a story within a letter, um, which is overly complicated, but I hope that these kind of examples show that, like, how this technique is still used. Um, right, now that I've put my literature degree to use for five seconds, we can get on to what these stories are about, or rather who they're about, because here we meet two characters, and they actually take the lead roles in the story, while Jesus is kind of more of a supporting actor. Um, of course, Jesus' role is central, but there is something to be said for the fact that after five chapters of just healing after healing after healing, this passage kind of slows down a bit to paint more of a picture of who these two people are. And I think the reason that the passage does that is because at first glance, these two people could not seem more different. And Mark wants us to recognise this. First, you have Jairus, who we learn is one of the synagogue leaders, as a religious teacher, he would have been quite important in the community, a kind of a figure of authority, both um, in terms of religious groups, but also culturally. Um, and he would have been very well respected. And I mean, it says a lot that he's the only named character in this passage beyond the people we already know. And then opposite to that, we have this unnamed woman who has been bleeding for 12 years suffering not only from the pain and inconvenience of her condition, but likely from the social implications of it. According to Levitical law, so it says in Leviticus 15, um, a woman on her period is considered unclean and would have been sent away to a separate tent to live um, kind of every month, um, as they aren't allowed to touch anyone else in this time because that would have made them unclean as well. For this woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, she would have been considered constantly unclean. Um, that means she would have been ostracised from her community and due to an un inability to have children probably would have been unmarried. Um, and as well as this, she was poor. It said that she spent all of her money on doctors. Um, and Luke's version also says that. And Luke was a doctor, so we can trust that. Um, these two people are from completely different worlds and yet they have something in common and that is Jesus. Jesus connects these people from all backgrounds and he connects people that sit at all points on the social ladder. Both of them come to Jesus here believing that he has the power to heal their situations. It says that Jairus pleaded earnestly with Jesus. There is sincerity in both of their approaches. They both long for healing and trust that Jesus can deliver this. Um, another similarity is seen in the risks they both take to come to Jesus. Um, and both of those risks come from their status, from who they are. For Jairus, there would have been huge risk 
even associating with Jesus, I said already that um, the Pharisees, his colleagues, uh, were wanting, wanting Jesus dead. They didn't want anything to do with him. So the fact that this man comes to him, falls at his feet, he must have been desperate and, frankly, terrified. Um, yeah, he kind of puts his pride aside to come to Jesus here. And then we have the woman for whom the rest comes from being in public. We know that there was a massive crowd and she must have pushed through so many people to get that close to Jesus. And of course, if she's pushing through them, she would have touched all of them, making all of them unclean as well. Uh, if she kind of got caught, if people realized who she was, um, there probably would have been some sort of punishment for that because, it, yeah, if she did it knowingly. Um, yeah, um, so Martin Luther, who was the great reformer, he once said, faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace. So certain of God's favour that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. And in a way, that's what these two people have demonstrated here. Uh, one more similarity comes from the fact that actually whilst Jairus is the one we hear about, uh, it's not him who needs healing, it's his daughter. Uh, so this is a story of two women being healed by Jesus. Um, so it's quite nice to get to preach that. Thanks. Um, however, whilst they both show considerable faith in Jesus, the way that this faith looks is different for both of them. For Jairus, what he knows of healing comes from what he understands of Jewish practice and Jewish law. So it makes sense that when he asks Jesus to heal his daughter, his specific request is this. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. This man knows that Jesus is capable of healing his daughter, but he also believes that healing has to happen in a specific way. Jesus has to be physically present and lay hands for a healing to take place. In contrast, the woman thinks, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Uh, Jesus had never healed in that way before, so maybe there was kind of some element of superstition mixed in with her faith. Um, but the fact remains that this woman had so much faith in Jesus's power and authority that she thought just getting close enough to him and grazing his clothes would be enough to relieve her of her suffering. Uh, she was right, of course, but isn't it interesting that this unnamed woman, her faith is stronger and it's not this religious leader. Consider too that as an unclean woman, she wouldn't have been allowed in the temple. So her religious education would be severely lacking compared to Jairus. And yet her faith in Jesus is enough to heal her and Jesus makes sure to tell her that. I always find that initial moment where Jesus calls her out of the crowd uh, a somewhat difficult one because it seems quite cruel initially to bring attention to her and her condition so publicly when, of course, Jesus knew exactly who had touched him. But the reason he brings her forward and, and she's trembling with fear as she tells him the truth, but he does this so that he can say to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. He does it for her sake so that her fear may be taken away and she may be encouraged in faith, but also so that all those in her community, all of those who were there and heard it, would know that she is healed, would know what Jesus has done for her, that she may be welcomed back in. It's interesting then. So then we now segue back from this woman's story into Jairus's. And as soon as we do, the tone changes very quickly because the servants come and say, Jairus, your daughter is already dead. Imagine how Jairus must have felt. 
They were delayed because of a random unnamed woman on the street. She was freed from her suffering, but that's almost the cause of his. But in the midst of that shock and pain of this announcement, Jesus gives Jairus a bold command. In verse 36, he says, don't be afraid, just believe. It's quite the thing to say to a man whose child has just died. And out of context, much like Jesus drawing attention to the woman, uh, it seems pretty cruel. It's kind of like a trite inspirational quote, isn't it? Like, oh, don't be scared, just believe. But Jesus's comment here, it's not a positive thinking mantra. He's not calling Jairus to believe in himself or even in his daughter. Jesus is calling Jairus to believe in him, the one who expels fear, the one capable of healing his child. Um, And the word used for believe here is actually um, a continuous word. It's used in the present tense that means it's not just a one-off action of just believe this one time, but this continuous action of believe in me. Um, yeah, so it, it's, a, it's a reminder as well that kind of faith and fear are odds with each other because of the fact he says, don't be afraid, just believe. Like, those two things don't coexist. Um, and this is where the sandwich structure works best because this very instruction is what we've just seen demonstrated in the story of this woman. Our understanding of what it means to not be afraid and to just believe is shaped by what we've just seen. Um, And Jairus obviously was there. He would have seen these events. So his understanding would also be shaped by what he's just seen. I wonder if he did draw to mind the woman um, when Jesus gave this command. I do want to briefly step out of the passage um, because I don't want to give a false impression. And I think that's important to say. Jesus isn't saying here that healing is dependent on us having enough faith. And I think it's quite dangerous to think that it is. Um, I think in the contemporary church today, Sometimes I just hear stories of people who are hurting and people in their churches say to them, oh, we'll just have more faith and you'll be healed. Um, This call to not be afraid and to just believe is for us as well, but it's believing in Jesus's authority to heal over believing that he will heal in the exact way we think he will. Um, I just wanted to make that clear because I think Like, sometimes we put our faith in the picture of how we think Jesus should heal rather than Jesus's power to heal. Um, And that's not what we're called to do. Um, So, back back into the passage. We return to Jairus's house and we are met by the commotion of mourners crying and wailing and kind of all over the place. Uh, Some of these would have been Jairus's family because this is the only opportunity to mourn publicly. Um, also to do with Levitical law, Jewish law, that is. Um, But also there would have been some professional mourners there, people literally paid to come to the house and cry, um, which sounds insane to us, but it is something that still happens in other parts of the world. Um, So, uh, yeah, when Jesus tells them, this little girl's not dead, she's merely asleep, they all laugh at him. Um, So this is kind of the first reaction we see in this passage of people reacting genuinely negatively negatively to Jesus. These people move very quickly from mourning to just straight up ridiculing Jesus. But Jesus stands by it, even though it is, of course, an audacious thing to say. Um, He stands by it, he removes them from the situation, and he commands the little girl to get up. 
And it's kept in Aramaic in, in this account of Jesus' life, maybe because Mark wanted to emphasise the power of these words. Um, yeah, and so this little girl who had lived as many years as this other woman had been suffering is brought back to life. Another person who would have been considered unclean under Jewish law, as because she was dead, um, is restored to cleanliness. And Jairus and his wife and the disciples are all just absolutely amazed and astonished at what Jesus has done. And so we have these two completely different people, and we've seen a few different reactions to Jesus. We've seen the blind faith of the woman, and we've seen kind of a more logical, rational, uh, restricted faith in Jairus. But are these responses the ones you would have expected from these people from these backgrounds? Probably not. Uh, Mark subverts our expectations here and reminds us that faith in Jesus, a pure, blind faith, is not defined by our religious education or our social status. In fact, it's Jairus' religious education that holds him back from seeing what Jesus is capable of. And so we now move from this section into the early part of chapter 6, where Jesus teaches in his hometown. Um, I'll read this passage for us, but before I do, uh, I just want you to take a moment again to kind of think how you would expect these people to react. Uh, I imagine some of you know the passage, but pretend you don't if you do know it. Um, these people are people who have known Jesus most of his life. What will their response to him be? Let me read it. Um, so this is Mark 6, uh, verses 1 to 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honour except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He cannot do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few people who were ill and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. So is that what you'd expect from people who've known Jesus pretty much his whole life? These people have known him since he was a child, but then when he comes back, they can't see him as anything other than who he was when he left for his ministry. Maybe some of us can relate to this, um, those of us who've grown up in a different town or going to a different church. I wonder if the people who knew us there know us differently to the ones who know us here and how we're seen as different. Or even your friends who've just known you or you've met at different points in your life. Um, I don't know how all of you spent lockdown, but one of the things I did a lot during lockdown was play games over Zoom with some friends. Um, and one game we played a lot is a game called Quiplash. And basically, you're given a prompt and two people have to come up with an answer that's the funniest. And everyone else votes on which one's the funniest. Um, I don't claim to be a class clown, but I think I can be pretty funny. Um, well, I thought I could until I then played this game with my friends from school uh, and I scored zero in the whole game. 
Um, and then I recounted this story to the friends from uni who I usually played with and said, oh, it's kind of like that bit in the Bible where Jesus goes to his hometown and nobody listens to him. Um, and now it's a running joke that I think I'm like Jesus, uh, which obviously I don't actually think I'm like Jesus. But the reason I mentioned this story is because it kind of helped me to kind of rationalise this idea of how we're seen differently by the people who knew us as a kid to the people who met us as an adult. So how do these people see Jesus? Well, they see him defined by all the things he was when he lived in Nazareth. A carpenter, Mary's son, the sibling of people who still lived and worked in their community. And they spit out all these labels at Jesus in quite a negative way. This isn't a case of, oh, wow, he's a carpenter and he's a teacher of the law. How versatile. Um, when they call Jesus a carpenter, they're calling out his lack of theological training. And it's interesting, too, that they call him Mary's son rather than Joseph's, which would have been kind of the customary way to refer to someone. Uh, this may just be because Joseph had died, but we could also read it as kind of having that same contempt as the carpenter comment. It could be a hint that they all knew Joseph wasn't his biological father, and that the kind of community were kind of, there were the rumours floating around that he was an illegitimate child. Um, you think, given that these people should have been the ones who knew Jesus best, that of course they would listen to his message. And yet they can't see Jesus as a great prophet or a good teacher because they still see him as the local carpenter's son. Uh, they're so wrapped up in who they think Jesus is that they can't see who he really is and what he teaches. They've fallen into a false familiarity and Jesus is left dumbfounded at their lack of faith. I know that I have kind of just speed rolled through that whole passage without massively pausing to think about how it applies to us today. Uh, but I've done this on purpose because I want us to see, well, I wanted us to see all of these different reactions, all of these different characters before we think about our own reaction and response to Jesus. Like, imagine you were there in that crowd that day with Jairus and the bleeding woman. Like the disciples, you probably would have been telling Jesus not to bother with the crowd or pausing, but to hurry on to Jairus's daughter. Uh, or at least I fear that would have been my response. It's so It would be so easy to prioritise the healing of someone of greater status than the one who is unnamed and just not even seen in the crowd. And yet Jesus takes the time here to pause and recognise the faith of this person, this social outcast. When you think of your friends, the ones who don't know Jesus yet, but you'd like to, I imagine there are certain ones you picture coming to faith more than others. If so, why is that? If you were walking through town in Guildford and you saw someone sat on the side of the street, would you think to pause and tell them about Jesus? Many of us will have people in our lives that we want to share Jesus with, but we won't see and stop and see the people God has put in our way when we're on our way to minister to them. The people we expect to have little faith could be the ones who surprise us. In this story, it is the unnamed bleeding woman who Jesus then uses as an example to Jairus of great faith. Jesus tells him to just believe off the back of his interaction with this woman. Uh, in my own life, I thought of a friend of mine who came to faith last year, and she was kind of completely the unexpected friend 
um, to come to faith. Uh, she was very vocal about her sexuality. She grew up in a Catholic church. She was raised in a broken home by a mum who had kind of a bad relationship with Christianity and the church. I never planned to talk to her about Jesus. She went to a CU, a Christian Union event in our last year of university, and then texted me and was like, can we talk about Jesus? Um, and yeah, she came to faith last year, got baptised this year. But that wasn't the person I was expecting to. Um, but if I hadn't stopped to just listen to who God was putting in my way, I would have just missed out on that and missed out on a sister in Christ. Um, in the sandwich structure of this story, God interrupts the work we think he's doing to save the person we never expected him to. A friend of mine once said to me, don't get so caught up in what you think God is telling you that you miss the work he's doing right now in front of you. And I think this story reminds us of that. Um, and I think that the second section, too, of Jesus in Nazareth continues to remind us it by offering us a warning that we can't become too familiar. If we think we fully know who Jesus is, we will miss what he's trying to show us and teach us about himself. Um, this morning, I woke up and I had a song in my head, and, and it's a song that just says, may we never lose the wonder of who Jesus is. And then I got to church and James started with one of my absolute favourite hymns. And my favourite line, Into God Be the Glory, is that line of purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our worship, when Jesus we see. And that's not the Jesus we think we know. That's the Jesus who is who he says he is. Um, the Jesus that we will one day meet in the new creation. And so what will our response be to this Jesus? Will we have faith that he is powerful and has authority to heal? Or will we put our trust in who we think he is and what we think he's capable of? Um, off the back of this story, though, I also want us to think beyond our response to Jesus and think of our response to the people around us. Jesus' work here affects people on both ends of the social spectrum. And Mark takes the time to tell us about both instances. We can't discriminate who we share the gospel with because Jesus' love spans all backgrounds. And the people we expect to understand his message best are sometimes the ones who are held back by false familiarity. Um, maybe for many of us hearing this today, uh, know in your heart that your faith is more like Jairus's or even the Nazarene's than this woman's. If that's the case, um, take some time in your heart to just pray God's forgiveness for that, but also ask his spirit to reveal who Jesus really is in a way that completely chances your expectations. Um, of course, if you would like to pray that through with someone else, there are plenty of us here who would love to pray with you, including myself. Um, but yeah, just take some time today and in the week ahead to let God interrupt what you think he's doing and to just work, to just do what he wants to do and look at the people he's placed in your life, the people in your family, in your classes, in your workplace. Any of these people could be the one Jesus wants you to reach out to. And we can't forget that because the second we do, we're forgetting just how big our God is and how far-reaching his love is for us. 
reactions and responses to Jesus will always vary. The book of Mark constantly proves that to us. But we can't assign responses to people. We have to just let Jesus be who he is and share that and let people decide for themselves how they feel about him. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. Um, and then we'll come back into a time of worship uh, now and kind of spend some time getting to respond to Jesus um, and just pray in that time that the Spirit would reveal more of who he is to you. And I'll pray for us now, but um, yeah, if we'd all like to stand and then I'll pray for us. Father, we just thank you for the person of Jesus. We thank you that he is the kind of person who elicits response. And as we work out our response to him and to the people around us, may we not miss the work that you are doing in our lives. May we not miss the people on the journey who we wouldn't expect to come to know and love you, but whose faith is even greater than the ones we expect to. I just pray for each and every one of us in this room that you would just be revealing more of yourself, that your spirit would just overflow, would be um, refreshed in each of us, that we would come to know you for who you are and not who we think you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We meet on Sundays at 10am at the Royal Grammar School in Guildford. We look forward to seeing you.